Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Do you have a favorite book of the Bible? I'd like to know what it is. If you have a favorite book of the Bible, I want you to think about it right now, please. And when I count to three, I want you to tell me what it is. Everybody together, shout out your favorite book of the Bible. One, two, three. I think we had all 66. How many of you said Ephesians? I want to see your hands, please. All right, there are some of you. I would judge 30, maybe over the entire auditorium. It's in the running for one of my favorites. I just couldn't really answer that if I had to ask or answer a question, what is my favorite book? Philippians would be right up there too. Ephesians is right up there. James is right up there. I've got lots of favorites and I can't really make up my mind. But Ephesians is a favorite of many people. Many consider it to be the greatest book in the Bible. If we could say there is a greatest book in the Bible. A.C. Gabeline said, This epistle is God's highest and best. Ruth Paxson, in her helpful commentary on Ephesians, called The Wealth, Walk, and Warfare of the Christian, called the book of Ephesians the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Louis Talbot said, The revelation which God has given in the Ephesian letter is by far the greatest he has ever given. That's a high recommendation for the book we're about to study. And I would imagine, as we've already seen, some of you here tonight feel the very same way about this little letter to the Ephesians. It's the epistle of church truth. The theme of this book is the church, the body of Christ. I shared with the first service this morning, but I didn't say several things in the second service. I did in the first But I shared that in my seminary days, as every seminary student has to do, I wrote a master's thesis in order to graduate. It wasn't lengthy, about 45 pages. And the subject I chose was the body of Christ in Ephesians, for that is the main theme of the book. It's the church, not the local church, but the church which is his body. All believers in this age who are united together under Jesus Christ, their life-giving head. It's the, the epistle of the church. It has two basic divisions. The first three chapters talk about the calling of the church. God's design for the church. Our position as members of the body of Christ. The character we have as Christians in the body. The second three chapters talk about the conduct of the church. The experience of believers in the body, our duty, our daily practice. So we have these two contrasting areas. The first one is basically doctrinal in character, chapters 1 to 3. The second relates to our everyday practice. It's relational in character. I hesitate to say it's practical in contrast to doctrinal. Because Dr. Ryrie taught me very well in seminary that all scripture was practical, all doctrine is practical. As a matter of fact, you cannot please God if you do not know the doctrine of the scripture. 
So I don't contrast doctrine with doctrinal with practical anymore. But we could call the first part the church's calling, the second the church's conduct. The first one we could call doctrine, the second one we could call duty. The first one talks about our position, the second one talks about our practice. The first explains the riches of God's grace, the second exhorts the recipients of God's grace. So we have these two major divisions. This is called a prison epistle because Paul wrote it from prison. You see in chapter 3 of Ephesians in verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, was written from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are called the prison epistles because they were written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Most Bible scholars are convinced that Paul was released from prison after that Roman imprisonment. In fact, if you turn over to the little book of Philemon, just one chapter book before the lengthy book of Hebrews, in verse 22 of Philemon, Paul said at the same time, Prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. He fully expected to be released. And most Bible scholars believe that he was released. Some feel that his accusers never showed up. The prosecution never really carried through with its case. And after some time, Paul was released. It wasn't a normal imprisonment. It was seen to be in a hired house or in the barracks of the Praetorian Guard. But he had a degree of liberty, at least liberty for people to come in and talk to him, if not liberty to go out to other places. He was released in all probability. He wrote First Timothy and Titus during his release and then he was apprehended again and put in the Mamertine prison in Rome where he wrote his swan song, Second Timothy, before he was martyred. So it's a prison epistle. We want to talk about some preparatory or introductory things tonight just to get the overall idea of who wrote this book and to whom and why in our minds tonight. Let's talk about the writer, the readers, and the blessing. And all this is found in the first two verses of the book. It's all we want to deal with tonight. First of all, the writer. He calls himself Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's interesting to see the salutations in Paul's letters and to compare them with the theme and purpose of the letter itself. For instance, if you hold your finger in Ephesians, go back to Romans chapter 1. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. In the, in the salutation itself, we get an inkling of the theme. Over to the book of Galatians. One of the purposes of Paul's letter to the Galatians was to vindicate his own apostleship, to demonstrate his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we're not surprised to read in the first verse of Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. God called me to be an apostle. My apostleship is of divine origin. It is not man-made. 
Turn over to his epistle to the Philippians. The great theme of Philippians is fellowship. And fellowship is only possible among God's children as we humble ourselves before one another and have a servant spirit. And Jesus Christ himself is presented to us as the servant who humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant. And we're not surprised to read in the first verse, Paul and Timothy, just Paul and Timothy, those who were fellowshipping in the ministry of the gospel, the servants of Jesus Christ. Read the first verses of a letter carefully because they give us a clue as to what the letter is all about. One of Paul's primary themes in the book of Ephesians is God's sovereign will. The sovereign plan of God for the church. And we're not surprised to read in the first, in the first verse of the book, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Very similar to Galatians but an apostle by the will of God. What is an apostle? An apostle is a sent one. That's what the word means. There were 12 who were called to be apostles. Judas was one of them. He committed suicide. One was chosen to take his place named Matthias. And I, for one, believe that the Spirit of God led the apostles in the choice of Matthias. I don't believe, as some have taught, that Paul should have been the 12th apostle. But Paul was an apostle in a very important and unique and significant sense, in a different sense from anybody else from the twelve. I mean, any other one called an apostle, Paul stands alone. He defends his apostleship, not only in Galatians, but in Corinthians. Am I not an apostle, he says? Have I not seen the Lord? Have I not performed miracles? He bore the credentials of an apostle. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he calls himself one born out of due season. He was not one of the twelve, but he stands beside them in a unique and distinct sense as a sent one of Jesus Christ. God had laid hold of him and touched his life and called him to be an apostle, one sent to the ends of the earth to communicate the gospel of his redeeming grace. And it was Paul's desire to share that message everywhere he could possibly go. He was a sent one. And he was chosen by God. He didn't choose himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. God laid hold of him. He didn't find God. God found him. And there was a sense of urgency about his commission and his desire to win the loss to Jesus Christ. He knew he was an apostle by the will of God. He was what he was because God chose him to be that. And I happen to be the, of the opinion that every child of God should have a calling from God. That whatever we are, we ought to be that because it is the will of God for us to be that and God has called us to that. I don't think that just goes for apostles or missionaries or pastors or other professional Christian workers. Every single one of us should be what we are by the will of God. If you're a businessman, you ought to be able to say... Paul or James or John or, or Horatio or whatever your name is. A businessman by the will of God. If you're an engineer, you ought to be an engineer by the will of God. If you're a housewife, you ought to be a housewife by the will of God. If you're a laborer, you should be a laborer by the will of God or a secretary by the will of God or a teacher by the will of God or a student by the will of God. 
student by the will of God? Maybe some of the minors in our congregation are saying, I'm a student because the government makes me be a student and my parents see that I'm there every day. How can I say I'm a student by the will of God? I'm a student by the will of my parents. Yes, but God says you are to be submissive to your government and obey your parents. That's God's will for you, students. So if you are a student by the will of your parents, you're a student by the will of God. And you know, that puts a whole different complexion on life. If you thought for a moment that you were on your campus because it was God's will for you to be there and that's God's place for you at that time and you're God's ambassador to your fellow students, then that would put a whole new light on what you're doing. If you knew God had called you to be a student and to learn and to grasp the, the facts God wants you to grasp in order that you might grow and equip yourself to serve Jesus Christ better in whatever capacity He leads you to in days to come, that would put a whole lot of different complexion on your study habits, wouldn't it? Whether you're in high school or college or whatever. Businessman, if you knew that you were a businessman by the will of God and God had put you in that office where you are because you are His ambassador, you are His sent one to that office to communicate His gospel, then that would put a whole new complexion on the day's work, wouldn't it? And if you're working on that assembly line or hammering those nails because it's the will of God, then you're God's person in that in that environment and it puts a whole different light on your relationship to those people with whom you spend your day, doesn't it? Paul is an apostle by the will of God. He was what he was because God had chosen him to it. Is that the way we view our vocation, our calling, our station in life, whatever it is? Or are we what we are because we have chosen to be that? We've decided what our goals are in life and what we'd like to attain. And so we've set those things out and maybe we haven't even ever consulted the Lord about it. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He wants you to consult Him about everything. And He wants you to do what you do and be what you are and go where you go because He's called you to it, because it is His will. And I'm afraid there may be some whom God has laid hold of and spoken to and directed and called maybe to professional Christian service, maybe to the mission field. But they've decided that isn't the direction they want to go. They want to have a nice home and a fat bank account and some of the finer things in life and consequently they've turned their back on God's will. Oh, dear Christian, Will you heed the example of the Apostle Paul tonight and seek the will of God for your life and then do it? Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He's the man who wrote this book. He wrote it because everything he did, he did with a desire to be in God's will. He wrote this letter because it was God's will for him to write it. And it was preserved because it was God's sovereign purpose to preserve it. And we're studying it, I believe, because God wants us to study it. I asked God what we ought to study. And then when it was revealed to me that the college group was still studying Ephesians, I said to myself, Lord, why did I choose Ephesians? But then I decided if I ask God to direct me, and I believe he did, then I'm going to go ahead and study Ephesians with you. And... Maybe the college students can teach me something about it as we go along. The author of the book 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Let's look at the readers. To the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's not two groups, by the way. Paul didn't write to the saints at Ephesus and then to the faithful in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. They're all one and the same. He wrote to the saints who were also faithful in Christ Jesus. And they lived at Ephesus. Ephesus was a city three miles inland from the Aegean Sea on a river, a wide river, that provided a natural harbor. Consequently, it became a great commercial port, one of the greatest in the ancient world. Not only was it a seaport, but it was likewise on the major trade highways to the other chief cities in Asia. Consequently, it was enhanced in its importance as a great commercial and trade city. It was in a beautiful location, situated on a hillside, rising up from that wide mouth river that provided that natural harbor. It had a fine, a fine climate and fertile soil, which only contributed to its importance. And it became one of the leading political and commercial and religious cities of the ancient world. Wealth poured into it. And much of that wealth found its way to one building in Ephesus. Because people from all over the known world came to Ephesus to pay homage to the goddess of Ephesus, whose name was Diana, whose wooden image, it was alleged, had fallen down from the heavens into the city of Ephesus. And so a great, magnificent, and luxurious temple had been built there to honor her. And the wealth of the ancient world poured into it. But the vile worship of Diana likewise was centered in that building. Worship of a pagan, idolatrous nature that included, among other things, even ceremonial prostitution. And so Ephesus was the center of sin. It was a stronghold of Satan. And into that city one day walked Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. A man sent by God to communicate the message of God's redeeming grace in Christ Jesus. The story is told to us in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. It was on Paul's second missionary journey. He had two friends with him, Aquila and Priscilla. And it says in verse 19 of Acts 18, he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry a longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. That's it. That is the story of the founding of the church at Ephesus. He wasn't there very long. Went into the synagogue, preached the gospel, reasoned with the Jews, some presumably trusted the Lord. He left Aquila and Priscilla there to nurture them and strengthen them in their faith. And he went on. But he did return. It was on his third missionary journey. Not only did he return, but he, he stayed there. In all probability, it was close to three years. Verse 10 of chapter 19 says it was two years. But there's several months before that and some months after that. And Bible scholars are convinced that he stayed there nearly three years. But it says... In verse 10, well, let's begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 19. 
When some were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they who dwelt in Asia, all they who dwelt in Asia, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That was probably longer than Paul stayed in any other single place during his missionary activity. Nearly three years. So this church at Ephesus becomes a very important church and assumes great prominence in the New Testament. It is a church that he left, where he left Timothy later in his ministry. And Timothy, in all probability, carried on a pastoral function in the church at Ephesus. Not only that, but later on, after Paul's death, John, the Apostle John, ministered in Ephesus. We learn that through the early church fathers. The Lord Jesus personally addressed a letter to the church at Ephesus in those seven letters to the churches in the book of the Revelation. There's other... Well, I should have mentioned also that Paul wrote to Timothy while he was ministering in Ephesus. Two letters, First and Second Timothy, were written to him in all probability while he ministered at Ephesus. That gives us more light on the church at Ephesus. There's an extended passage in the book of Acts, chapter 20, where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And there's some other things we learn about them in the church at Ephesus. It's probably, we could honestly say, the most prominent church in the New Testament epistles. That's why it's so important. You remember in Acts chapter 19, shortly after Paul got there, and while he was teaching and preaching and the word was sounding out throughout Asia, the silversmiths at Ephesus noticed a decline in their sales of images of Diana. They were very upset about it and instigated a riot so that Paul and his companions were threatened. Their lives were endangered. And the persecution didn't let up. It went on for some time. As a matter of fact, it was still probably going on when Jesus gave John that letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 because he commends them twice for the way they endured patiently. Patient endurance under trials but it's interesting that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he calls them saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They're saints. You know what that means. The word saint and the word holy and the word sanctified all come from the same root in the New Testament. And we're all saints, every single child of God positionally. Jesus Christ has made unto us sanctification, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30. We have been forever sanctified, according to Hebrews 10.10. 10. Positionally, we are holy ones. That doesn't depend on our practice, doesn't depend on our good deeds. It depends on our position in Jesus Christ. But God made us saints in order that we might do good deeds. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The Apostle James tells us that the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that works that shows mercy and kindness and love toward other believers, that obeys God. And the Ephesians were folks who were faithful in obeying Jesus Christ. That wasn't easy to do. That was like being faithful to Jesus Christ in a refugee camp where many of the people there hate believers and even try to kill them. That's the way the Ephesians were. Faithful in Christ Jesus. They were faithful in the face of trials. They were faithful in the face of temptations. Surely there were temptations to sin or temptations to defect from their faith. 
They were faithful, trustworthy, dependable, reliable, steady. They just kept on, keeping on. They were faithful. And that's why God had saved them. Ephesians didn't say, well, now we're saved. We got the truth. Isn't this wonderful? Sit back and soak it in and sit on it. God gave them the truth, Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 32. He commended them to God and to the word of His grace because it was able to build them up. And these Ephesians were people who absorbed the word of God and were built up in the things of Jesus Christ and carried on faithfully for His glory. They let the Word of God change their lives, give them victory over sin, motivate them to share Jesus Christ in His love and saving grace with others. They were faithful in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants His Word to do to us. You know, there's another thing I have to tell you about these folks who read this letter. Some of the ancient manuscripts really don't have the words at Ephesus in them. It just says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say at Ephesus. And that has led some Bible scholars to believe that this letter to the Ephesians is what is called a cyclical letter. What that means is it was written by Paul with not one church in mind, but a number of churches in mind, and that he intended it to be circulated among these churches. Now, there's some pretty good reasons for that. One is the absence of the words at Ephesus in some of the ancient manuscripts we've found. Furthermore, there's the absence in this book of any specific controversy, as Paul addresses in some other books to some other specific people. There's no specific church problem addressed in this book. They're just general principles of Christian doctrine and Christian living. There are no specific people greeted in this book, as there are in many of other of, the, of Paul's letters. Good reasons for thinking that maybe this is, in fact, a cyclical letter. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn over for a moment to Colossians 4.16. Colossians 4.16. Paul was accustomed to doing this, encouraging letters to be circulated. Look, Colossians 4.16. And when this epistle, this epistle to you Colossians, is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you also read the epistle from Laodicea. Many Bible scholars believe that that epistle Paul is talking about from Laodicea is none other than the book we know as his epistle to the Ephesians and that the copies that were found first had the words at Ephesus in because that name was filled in to whatever church it went to that name was put in that spot you see it was copied the letter was copied and the name of that church put in so maybe this is a general letter written to several churches you know that's kind of interesting to me because maybe we can fill us our own selves in there wouldn't it be good if God could say to us, I've got some things I want to share with you, saints, who are in Escondido, faithful in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God could say that about us? Not only saints by virtue of our position in Jesus Christ, but faithful to our calling, our daily conduct, 
matching our, da- our eternal position in Christ. They are the readers. Let's look briefly at the blessing. Verse 2, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. We've talked about those words so often. They're in almost every letter Paul wrote. They were the common greetings of the day. The Greeks said, Charis, grace. The Jews said, Shalom, peace. Now, Shalom is not the word here because this was written in Greek. The Greek word is not Shalom, it's Arene. But it was nevertheless the translation of the common Hebrew greeting of the day, Shalom. But they mean far more than just hello, as those words meant to those ancient peoples. Because the Apostle Paul, writing by inspiration of God's Spirit, fills them with great meaning, far superior to just a greeting. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verse 3, Paul teaches us that we have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. And grace and peace are not only a greeting, they are great blessings we have from God. They're really the first two blessings that are listed in this chapter. Grace is God's bountiful favor bestowed on the undeserving. And when God reaches down and lays hold of hell-bound sinners who deserve nothing but eternal judgment and forgives their sins and imparts to them everlasting salvation and an eternal inheritance, that friend is grace. God's bountiful favor bestowed on the undeserving. For by grace are you saved through faith. God's grace, His free gift, is received simply by believing it. If you've never received God's gracious gift of eternal salvation, you won't be able to understand this book, and it won't mean very much to you. And we'd like to suggest that you begin right there by acknowledging your sin and believing that Jesus died in your place and that God provided on Calvary's cross everything that needs to be done for your eternal salvation. And He asks you simply to believe it to reach out by faith and receive His gracious gift of salvation. Grace be unto you. And after you do that, then God just keeps pouring out His grace. It's sufficient for every need. And then, and then you can enjoy His peace. And as you well know, there are two major kinds of peace referred to in the New Testament. There is the peace of God and there is peace with God. And you need to know where they're found because many believers can say, yes, I know about that, but they don't know where to turn to show somebody else those truths. But peace with God is in Romans chapter one and verse, or chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time when we were God's enemies. Maybe we didn't know it. Maybe we didn't realize it. But it was true. God's enemies. But because Christ died on that cross... The alienation has been removed. The condemnation has been taken away. God's holiness has been satisfied. And man has been reconciled. And now there is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have been the recipients of God's grace can enjoy that peace with God through Christ. And for those who have received His grace and have made their peace with God... There is in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 the peace of God. Where Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
That was the kind of peace Paul enjoyed. A few verses later when he said, whatever state I'm in, I've learned in there, in that situation, that circumstance to be content. That's what we were talking about this morning. Contentment. It's for the child of God who knows the God of all grace who's experiencing that daily supply and provision which is all sufficient, then there is that inner tranquility and calmness of soul that equips the child of God to face any circumstance of life with confidence and assurance. The peace of God that sets up its guard around our hearts. They're God's blessings for believers. Are you enjoying them tonight? They're yours. They are the the right of every child of God to enjoy. They come as we get to know Him in a more intimate fellowship and communion and then lay hold of His grace and His peace. Well, that's the introduction. We call it the salutation. There's the writer, a man who was what he was by the will of God, a challenge to us all. There are the readers, faithful saints, growing believers, a challenge to us all. And there is the blessing. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The privilege of us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to lay hold of, help us to lay hold of our possessions. We have so much available to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask you, Father, that we may learn to know you better and to enjoy you fully in a moment-by-moment -moment communion that provides for us that peace that passes all understanding. And I pray, Lord, that if there are some with us tonight who have never met Jesus Christ in a saving relationship, they may be willing to acknowledge their sin and open their hearts to Him. We ask it in His precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss, Copyright 2020, Spiritual Gold, Inc., all rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.